Good morning. Good to see you all. Good morning to those of you watching online, on demand, or live right now. And um, yeah, uh, Kyler failed to say that 29 students showed up, or at least we had counted 29. And there was like talk of, well, you know, we got so close. I said, mm -mm. no shaving without 30. You'll have lots of incentive for next year. And then one more came. <laughs> so it was pretty, pretty exciting. Um, it was, I mean, it, we, we thought it was done. No, nope, he's not going to shave this year. So uh, uh, it was good. So no incentive next year. Next year, none will come. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> they'll, they'll come. All right, so this is the last week of our six-week series on your story in God's global mission. So God calls his people, he calls his church to go to the ends of the earth. And as we're going to the ends of the earth, he says he wants us to be witnesses of what Jesus has done. He says that uh, there is, uh, we are to proclaim that there is forgiveness of sins for those who repent. Jesus said, go to the ends of the earth, go to all the nations, and witness to what I have done. But not all of us can go, not all of us do go, and it'd be kind of weird if we all did go. It'd leave nobody here. Um, so last week we saw that we can go to the ends of the earth, we go to the nations without leaving our hometowns, because the nations have come to us. And we looked at Acts chapter 2, where the nations come to Jerusalem. And when the Holy Spirit comes at Pentecost, uh, how uh, Peter preaches a sermon and begins the church. This week, we're going to look at how we can go to the nations by partnering with missionaries who do go. And as we'll see today, we have an impoverished view of what it means to partner with missionaries if we think all that means is giving them money. So because understanding the Bible doesn't have to be a mystery, because understanding our part in God's story doesn't have to be a mystery, I want to encourage you to open your Bibles to Philippians chapter 1. If, for those of you who are here, there's a Bible in the seat rack in front of you, you can grab one of those, and it's on page 1,178 in those Bibles. So we're going to pray. Uh, today's prayer is based on 2 Peter, uh, our prayer of illumination is based on 2 Peter chapter 1. 2 Peter is a very short book, it's three chapters, and we're going to spend the summer in 2 Peter starting next week. And so, um, but today's prayer is based on that, so please join me in prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you for inviting us into a life with you and for calling us to join you in your mission. Your word tells us that through your power and our knowledge of you, you have given us everything that we need. Thank you for your word given for us. Open our hearts and our minds to you and lead us by your spirit as we look to your truth. Give us faith to believe that you are always working. Use us and shine through us into the world around us. Father, help us to um, bring your light into everything we do and bring your care and your love. And we just have so many situations going on around the world, from the war in Ukraine to this horrific shooting in Texas, the horrific shooting in Buffalo. People are afraid, people uh, involved, uh, family have lost family and loved ones, these children, Father. We don't have words to describe how sad that is and how tragic it is. 
I pray, Father, that we as your people would be lights in the midst of this. I pray that your people would be part of solutions, that churches around the nation would be part of solutions in helping um, reduce this kind of event. I pray for our politicians as they are making decisions. I pray that they would work together. And um, Father, we also thank you. Uh, we also pray uh, for this whole situation um, with this, this report that came out about sexual abuse in the Southern Baptist Convention, and we recognize, Father, that that's not just something that happens in the Southern Baptist Convention, but it happens in institutions all over uh, our world, and in homes, and in so many places, Father. We pray for you to bring healing. We pray, Father, for churches and other organizations to uh, seek healing and, um, and, and repent of, of covering things up and not being honest about what's really happening. Father, um, we, we thank you today for uh, what this weekend is. It's a time to remember and to... Uh, venerate those who have uh, given their lives for our nation. And uh, we, we just thank you for those lives. We thank you. Um, we thank you for the life that we have and the freedoms that we have. And I pray, Father, that, uh, that you would bless families that even now have lost loved ones in recent years, that you would give them uh, hope and that they, would, um, that they would be honored this weekend. We thank you, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right, so throughout the series, we've had missions partners reading our scripture for us and telling us a little bit about their ministry. Uh, so uh, we have one today as well. So let's watch and follow along in the scripture. It's, it's being read to us. Hi, my name is Rose Lindquist. After growing up on the mission field and then working in France for many years, I continued to work with Greater Europe Mission as mission pastor and life coach. Missionaries are people who have the same kinds of things to deal with as you and me. Living abroad, further away from family and friends, and facing many of life's transitions is challenging. Having experienced many myself, I am honored to be allowed to come alongside these beautiful people, listening to them, praying with them and for them, coaching them to be the best they can be in the places that God has called them to work. Thank you, Five Oaks family, for standing with me and making this ministry of support and encouragement possible. I'm reading from the book of Philippians, chapter 1, verses 3 through 8, and chapter 2, verses 25 through 30. I thank my God every time I remember you in all my prayers for all of you. I always pray with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now, being confident of this, that he who began a good work within you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. It is right for me to feel this way about all of you since I have you in my heart, and whether I'm in chains or defending and confirming the gospel, all of you sharing God's grace with me. God can testify how I long for all of you with the affection of Christ Jesus. But I think it is necessary to send back to you Epaphroditus, my brother, co-worker, and fellow soldier, who is also your messenger, whom you send to take care of my needs. 
for he longs for all of you and is distressed because you heard he was ill. Indeed, he was ill and almost died. But God had mercy on him, and not on him only, but also on me to spare me sorrow upon sorrow. And therefore, I am all the more eager to send him, so that when you see him again, you may be glad and I may have less anxiety. So then welcome him in the Lord with great joy. Honor people like him, because he almost died for the work of Christ. He risked his life to make up for the help you yourselves could not give me. All right, so we're looking at the Philippian church uh, today who were partners in ministry with the Apostle Paul, and they were uh, known for their generosity. I once read a story about a family that was struggling financially in a pretty big way, and when the church began a collection to help another family in the church uh, who was also struggling financially, this family that was struggling financially uh, looked around, the kids looked around and, and picked some toys to give to this other family. Uh, the parents found some things that they used but weren't absolutely necessary, and they included it in this care package. And they gathered it all, and they took it to the church. And I'm not sure at what point they found this out, but it turns out they were the family that the church was helping. That's what I think of when I think of the church in Philippi. Here's what Paul says about them, the church in Philippi, when he's encouraging the Corinthian churches, which is much better off financially, uh, what he was saying to them as he was taking a collection, he's about to come to Corinth, and he wants them to be ready, having done the collection already, for the Christians in Jerusalem, for the church in Jerusalem. And to encourage them, he says, and now, brothers and sisters... We want you to know about the grace that God has given the Macedonian churches. That means the church in Philippi, the church in Thessalonica, and the church in Berea. In the midst of a very severe trial, their overflowing joy and their extreme poverty welled up in rich generosity. For I testify that they gave as much as they were able, and even beyond their ability, entirely on their own, they urgently pleaded with us for the privilege of sharing in this service to the Lord's people, and they exceeded our expectations. They gave themselves, first of all, to the Lord, and then, by the will of God, also to us. You see why I'm making this connection between this family and this generous church. This was a generous church that gave in spite of what Paul calls extreme poverty. They not only gave to the Jerusalem church, they also gave to Paul's ministry in an ongoing fashion. It's part of what Paul means when he refers to them as partners in verse 5. So look at chapter 1, back to chapter 1, verse 4, where Paul says, In all my prayers for all of you, I always pray with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. Uh, we know that that partnership included financial help because of what he says later in the letter and elsewhere uh, in other letters. But if you'll turn to chapter 4 and verse 14, Apostle Paul is coming to the end. He's in prison. They have sent Epaphroditus. We had that read to us. Uh, with Epaphroditus came a financial gift to Paul who's in prison. 
And it says in verse 14, yet it is good for you to share in my troubles. Moreover, as you Philippians know, in the early days of your acquaintance with the gospel, when I set out from Macedonia, not one church shared with me in the matter of giving and receiving, except you only. For even when I was in Thessalonica, you sent me aid more than once when I was in need. So this is a church that is a poor church, but a very generous church. It costs them a lot to give. So Warren Buffett, after he gave $26 billion, <laughs> it's just so weird to say that, uh, to the Gates Foundation, uh, said something that um, I'm going to give you a paraphrase uh, that I read. Uh, he said, my gift has not changed my lifestyle one bit. I still go to the movies I want to go to and eat at the restaurants I want to dine at. But what about the person who gives a gift that requires they can't go to the movies or eat out? They are the true givers, the true heroes of generosity. The Philippian church is exactly what Buffett is talking about in that quote. I remember a family in our church in one of our campaigns in the past who delayed moving out of their apartment and into their first home in order to give to the campaign. And uh, it was a significant delay. And there was more going on. I can't say any more than that, otherwise some of you will figure out who it is. So I'm just going to leave it there. They're true heroes of giving. Um, here's a reality. People who wait until they have more to give before they give rarely give when they have more to give. People who wait until they have more to give before they give rarely give when they have more to give. But here's another reality. Buffett and Gates and people like that who give large amounts. Now, even, even though it's not hurting them in any way, like Buffett says, I still get to do the things I want to do. And that's one of the interesting things about Buffett. He just wants to do simple things. <laughs> and, um, and that's kind of true of his life, interestingly. But people who have a lot of money to give, it doesn't hurt them when they give even large amounts, uh, are also true heroes of giving. Uh, it's rare for people with a lot of money to give away a lot of money. Uh, it's, uh, I've cited some of the studies before when I've talked about this. I mean, it's verifiable that the more you have, the more likely you are, and this is true in every single one of our lives, the more likely you are to think more about yourself and your stuff. And it takes, it takes a lot to get you to kind of let go and be able. It, it happens, but it doesn't happen in large numbers. Some of the most generous people I know have a lot. And they're generous with everything that they have. And they prioritize giving, and it makes a big difference in people's lives and in the work of God's kingdom. Paul could do what he did because there were people from churches he had founded, planted, partnering with him in his mission. Now, there's a lot that Paul did because he supplied for himself. He would go to a town and he'd set up shop and he would do his work and he would make his own living. Uh, but not always, not everywhere he went. And there was more that he could do because churches like the church in Philippi were partnering with him. So the word he uses to describe partnership, uh, their partnership with him, is a very rich, rich word. 
It's a word that if you've been around church circles for very long, heard very many sermons, you've heard this word. It's the word koinonia, um, which is usually thought of as and often interpreted as fellowship or community. And so to understand uh, this word, I'm going to do kind of like I did last week and just spend a few minutes talking about uh, biblical interpretation and specifically about how we should understand words and the words within Scripture. And uh, there's, there's some really important reasons to be able to do this because sometimes we're, uh, one of the reasons is because sometimes we're led astray by um, well-meaning ideas about words that really don't reflect how words work and because we become better communicators when we understand how words work. So in every language and every time and every culture, words get their meaning by how they are used That's how they get their meaning. They don't get their meaning from a dictionary. They never get their meaning from a dictionary. I know everybody knows that, but it it actually needs to be said. Nobody gets the meaning of a word by by a dictionary. The dictionary reflects how words are used. And as you look at a dictionary, it'll tell you all the different ways that a word is used. Sometimes one word can be used in all kinds of ways. Uh, An example of that that is often given is the word run in English. So you can run to the store even though you jumped in your car to do it. You can get a run in a stocking even though I'm not sure people still wear stockings. I don't know. You can run out of sugar. You can go out for a run. You know, put your shoes and actually run. You can run on and on and on about the word run. You can get the runs. <laughs> I'm just going to stop right there. <laughs> but as you know, there's a whole bunch of ways that the word can be used. Same word, and it's used in the, and, and, and every language is like that, including biblical languages, you know, because they're not biblical languages, the, the languages that the Bible is written in Hebrew, a little bit of Aramaic, and Greek. It's the same thing. They are not. The Bible wasn't written in a sacred language. Um, So Bible words get their meaning by how people used it in the Bible and in the culture. So we need to remember this. You don't, knowing that, you don't pack all the meanings from every context into the meaning of a word when you use a word or when you hear it. If I say I'm running to the store, it has nothing to do with getting the runs, right? right? You don't just take all the definitions and put them in there and say, this is what this word means. Now, here's another thing to remember. You don't get the meaning of a word by looking at its derivation. Like, where did this word come from? Derivations, they can be interesting and they can be illustrative of how the word is being used. You, know, you can say, well, you know, you look at this word and let's look at its background and, and, and it can... It can help us in some ways to really get the sense of how the word is being used. But words that we use in conversations and in writing have nothing to do with the original meaning in Latin or Greek or Old English. So, for example, when you use the word enthusiasm, um, how much does the derivation of that word, you know, come into play when you use that word? Because um, here's the derivation of the word enthusiasm. The noun enthusiasm comes from the Greek word enthusiasmos from enthus, meaning possessed by a god, inspired. 
It was originally used, okay, here would be like the old English use, as a der- in a derogatory sense to describe excessive religious zeal. Okay, so obviously if you were to say somebody is very enthusiastic about this or that, you don't mean it in a derogatory way or to talk about excessive religious zeal. So the derivation has very little to do, if anything at all to do, with how it's being used now. Um, One more thing. You don't discover the meaning of a word by breaking down the word into its syllables and then combining the meaning of the syllables. Now, sometimes a word is put together. Germans do this all the time. And you do have to look at the syllables, okay? So sometimes, and, and it can happen in Greek and it can happen in Hebrew as well, but most of the time you don't do that. So let's say you tell a five-year-old to clean her room, and then you tell her that you're going to inspect her work when she's done. And she looks at you and she goes, what does inspect mean? Well, you go, well, let's look at the syllables. Inspect is from in, into, and so on. I'm not going to read that whole thing because I can't read it. I don't know what it's saying. Um, But that's not how, that's not what you meant by it. You simply meant inspect is, you would explain to her, I'm going to come in there and make sure you did what I asked you to do and did it well enough, all right? And she'll be able to understand that. Um, you don't do with Bible words. One of the most famous ones is that, that is oftentimes misused like this is, and it's, it's not wrong, but say, ecclesia, church, which means assembly um, in uh, its everyday language. Uh, and so it says, ek, out of, lacia, call, called out, that's what the church is. No. It's assembly. It's a gathering together. It, n- nobody was thinking about what the syllables meant. It was just an everyday word that was used and applied to the gatherings of believers. So it would be nice if it was just that simple. But now I'm going to complicate what I just said a little bit. Because language is complex and it's tied to culture to such a degree that many words, when they're used, they're packed with cultural meaning. And some words become Technical words used as a shortcut in communication. So if you work um, in a particular field, let's say technology, you're not going to use like the definition of every word. You're going to use certain words that stand for something much bigger. That can happen in the Bible as well. And so if it says the gospel is about the righteousness of God, and then Paul goes on, you're like, okay, the context tells me very little there but he's using a very loaded term, righteousness of God. So we need to understand what righteousness of God, how it has been used, how Paul used it, what its Old Testament background. So there is packed into the word a lot of times, a lot of meaning into a certain word. Now, sometimes to understand the word from another culture and language that's being used, we talked about this a few weeks ago when we were studying Romans, you need an encyclopedic entry not just a dictionary. It's not just a word. You need, like, you need to understand how that word was used in that culture. So koinonia is one of those words. And, um, and so I did this last week to you. Uh, I'm going to do it to you again. Uh, I'm going to give you an assignment. It's in, this, uh, the, in the sermon application guide. Uh, you're going to go through and you're going to look at all the uses of koinonia in uh, Philippians. Hopefully you'll take the time to do that. Take you maybe 10 minutes to do that, and you'll see how rich this word is. I'll give you a little bit uh, today 
But basically, if you were to get an encyclopedic entry to this, this is from the Lexham um, Theological Wordbook, I think it's called. Um, yeah, Theological Wordbook. And it's just part of it. The rest of it's in your outline, and it's still even a short encyclopedic entry. It says, koinonia is, uh, can be translated fellowship, communion, sharing, participation. Um, it can also be translated as giving, uh, contributing. So, a term, it's a term that conveys a sense of commonality, solidarity, and shared responsibility among households or individuals. The most general sense of this term refers to a shared conviction that manifests itself as mutual responsibility and status. Now, the definition in your sermon application guide goes into even greater detail and shows some of the passages where it's being used. It has, it's rich in cultural meaning uh, because when it talks about this fellowship and sharing and everything, it's, it's in a different culture than ours that was much more communal and where partnerships were absolutely necessary and recognized as being necessary for thriving. Um, it's probably just as necessary today, but we don't recognize it. Oftentimes we can be a lot more off to ourselves um, and surviving just fine. So with that definition in mind, uh, there is that question in the sermon application guide. Now, I'll give you just a little bit about koinonia because it does refer to a deep and abiding partnership with Paul in his missionary work. It wasn't just thrown out there, you know, hey, we're, hey thank you, you sent me some money. <laughs> it's, it's much bigger than that. There were people in the church in Philippi who were too poor to ever travel outside of the city limits in their entire lifetime. That's how most people live in the world. That's how most people lived all throughout history. But they were having an empire-wide impact by partnering with Paul. And they knew that. And that's an amazing thing. I don't know that I can even really grasp it. I was thinking as I, as I wrote that, I was thinking about recently receiving a letter from uh, David Niebling, if you He's a five ochre, uh, and he had a table out there during one of our, um, during this series. And right now, I think he's in Africa right now, training leaders uh, who train other leaders. And he's got just great ministry model of training people who train people. So creating disciple makers who make disciples who make disciples. And I, as I was thinking about that, I said, do I really grasp, I thought, do I really grasp that David is an extension of us as a church because we help support him in his ministry. Um, and we pray for him. And you know, when I get his letter, I read through it, I pray for him. Every once in a while, I'll send him a note that says, praying for this particular, you know, praying for your family as you're gone, praying for the success of what you're doing there. And, and, but when he's there, he's, he's an extension of us. And so many others are extensions of us in the work that they're doing. We can't be there with him. Uh, we don't do what he does, but what he's doing is we're partnering with him. And it's more than just, yeah, we're giving him some money. We're partnering with him in a sense of mutuality, commonality. We're, we're doing this together. So I just want to talk about that for a few moments. Um, how can we be good partners in a biblical sense in the way that the Bible talks about the partnership that the Philipp 
Philippians had with Paul, um, other people had. How can we, we do that? Um, and so uh, here, here we go. Here are four ways. One is a, a word that's somewhat met, made up. I, th- there have been some uses of this, uh, but I don't think it's in most dictionaries. Um, at least Google found some uses of it. Unpedestal. Okay, so we have to take them off. We need to take missionaries off the pedestal, a pedestal that we tend to put them on. Uh, just thinking of, of Rose as she was talking about the work that she does. She does a lot of counseling and support of missionaries. She's a missionary who supports other missionaries, kind of pastors other missionaries. And uh, why? Because they need pastoring. <laughs> because they're normal people. Because they have a lot of the same struggles, but oftentimes they don't have the family right close by or a church necessarily um, and all the support structures, Christian support structures that we have. And, but they have all of those, um, all the same kind of needs that they have. But when we put them on a, on a pedestal, we really can't be an encouragement to them. We really can't help them because we think of them as being beyond, you know, the needs that regular people have. Uh, they're committed to Christ, absolutely, and, and, and we can honor them for that, um, uh, and they have this adventurous spirit that has taken them, you know, to, to the ends of the earth sometimes. Now, I often think of it this way. Let's say you know a missionary that's working with a tribe of people on an island that's hardly been touched by Western society and culture, all right? Maybe you've known some missionaries like that. They've spent their life, like, really far away. That missionary, in reality, if that missionary were not a Christian, would quite likely have a similar life. Maybe they'd be an anthropologist living and studying a tribe on that remote island because people do that without a Christian sense of wanting to do that. Of course, there are a lot of exceptions to that, but one of the realities is that missionaries who go and who stay and stay there all their lives, are made for it. It's kind of like they're wired for that. Now, in going, a lot of them, you know, uh, they, they leave a lot. And, um, and, and they, they need that support. But don't put them up on this pedestal like, like they're the most amazing people who are, you can't help them in that. Of course, there's some exceptions. There's some people that go, uh, you know, that really don't want to go to just, just get this calling and they are not even feel like they're made for it. There's some great stories out there like that. But some of those people also don't make it for very long. Um, if I had more time, I could tell you about Lois's dad. Uh, so my wife Lois grew up on, um, in Liberia. Her dad was a missionary. Her parents were missionaries. And uh, his job was primarily working on a radio station. He was an engineer. He kept the radio station running. That was part of his job. He wasn't the only one there. There were these, these people. Lois' dad was not a super Christian. He was not like a, um, uh, somebody who didn't have uh, issues and struggles and needs while he was there. He's very adventurous. I mean, he, would, uh, he, he probably would have done something similar to that if he hadn't been a Christian. Uh, but, uh, but he had needs. And um, as I said at his funeral, I... I officiated at his funeral. I said, you know, a lot of you know Dale, I said. And so it's, I was trained by the guy who was my, the senior pastor over me uh, for many years when I was an associate to be honest 
at a funeral. Don't, don't whitewash things. <laughs> and uh, so I said, a lot of you know Dale, and you know he can be a um, difficult person at times. I said, he's someone who I would not want to be his pastor, but I loved being his son-in-law. He was a great father-in-law. Uh, yeah, I felt bad, bad, bad for pastors because his, his, his sport was needling and figuring out ways to make things difficult. Um, so anyways, uh, number one, take them off the pedestal. Uh, number two, pray. <clears throat> That's one of the ways that the Philippians partnered with Paul. They prayed for him. They prayed for one another. There was this mutual thing going on. Anytime you get communication from a missionary that you support, that's a perfect time to pray for them. You know, any missionary worth their salt <laughs> communicates with the people who are supporting them. So you get that email, and that's your reminder. That's your reminder right there to pray for them. Now, if you have a lot of people you support and you're getting too many emails, you say, I can't keep up with it. Um, this is what you can do. You can open the email or you can open the attachment, scan down. There's always going to be a list of bulleted prayer requests at the end, always. And you can, if you don't read anything else, go to that and pray specifically in the way that they ask you to pray. Uh, as I've been talking about in the series on Mondays in our daily life devotional that you can get in your inbox or you can get as a podcast on your podcast app, uh, we pray on Mondays specifically for missions or some of the missionaries that we partner with. So there's an opportunity there as well. Number three, read and reply. Again, you may not be able to do this with all the letters that you get if you get a lot of letters of missionaries that you support, but try to read their communications. And then send back. I, I haven't always done this. I've, I've always done it kind of in a spotty way, but really preparing the sermon, I'm like, I really want to do this on a regular basis and um, have started doing it. So when you get the letter, read it, pray for them, and then let them know that you read it. It might be as simple as loved your letter or prayed for this. And um, after they get up from fainting that someone actually read the letter, uh, they're going to be very excited because the reality is that they see the open rate on those letters uh, and it's not that great. And the reality is that it is a super big encouragement. They send out those letters wondering, is anybody even reading these things? And so it's a great encouragement to send something back. And then finally, give. Uh, one of the really interesting features of Philippians is how much business partnership language is used in the letter. So much so that one of my professors at Boston University actually wrote an entire book on it. And what he argued is, is that technically speaking, this letter is a receipt. There's so much business language in it that this is exactly the kind of letter in the first century that if you receive money, you would send back and use the terminology that's in this letter. Now, of course, it's much more than a receipt, but it was a, a way of saying, I have received your money, and may God bless you. And, and, and in other letters, it would be, and may the gods bless you, and you know all that sort of thing. It uses a lot of the same conventions of that day. Uh, so they're, they're, they're giving to him. Our church, Five Oaks, uh, 
whatever is given to Five Oaks, we take 10%. If you've been around here for a while or come to a congregational meeting, you know this. We give 10% to impact ministry. So the idea behind that 10% is outside of serving us. And so we, we do that. Uh, if we have a budget shortfall, we will go get a loan before we spend that 10% on ourselves. I mean, it's just like we don't, we give that 10% no matter what. Now, every year for, you know, probably the last 12, 15 years, it actually is 12%, but we will play a little bit and delay with that 2% uh, if necessary or put it off, uh, but we've never had to not, not do that. And um, so, you know, uh, last year, if I've done my math correctly, uh, you know, we, we, we gave about $250,000 when I say we, it's ours. It's what we gave as a church out to ministries outside of us. And sometimes people get really zealous about missions. And uh, it's been a while since someone has said this, but I've had people say, why don't we give a higher percentage? Why only 10%? And I, I say to them, I say, um, I, love, I love your passion. Uh, and the reality is we do. We do. And um, much, much more, because almost everyone in our congregation who gives to Five Oaks also gives to all kinds of other <laughs> missions, organizations, and missionaries. And we're not going to do a count on that. I've thought about it sometimes, but then I think of what David did when he counted how many soldiers he had. It's not a good thing. It's just, it's, 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 it's not a healthy thing. But the reality is that, that it is a lot, lot more uh, than 10% uh, that we support all over the world. All right, there are ways that we can partner uh, with missionaries, and I think you know, Philippians is a great example of that. That partnership, you do that little study, it's a lot deeper, and I really want to encourage you uh, to take this to heart. In fact, everything that we've done in this series. I mean, we started at the very beginning of this series looking at how Jesus said that the whole Bible is about him, and not just about him, it's about the mission to go to all the nations. We saw how that traces all the way through the Old Testament. We're a part of that. That is the Bible story, but that is our story as well, if we're followers of Jesus. And maybe you haven't had a chance to take on one of these challenges. Maybe there's not a whole lot of missions in your life. Uh, I would encourage you to take on one of the challenges or one of the ideas, not challenges, that we did uh, earlier in the sermon application guide, whether it be reading a biography, a missionary biography, or watching a YouTube series on missionaries, or any of the things that we, we offered. Um, but let's move now into our time of response as we continue our worship. And if you'll take the communion cup... We're reminded again that we have this mission uh, because Jesus came on a mission for us. And as he told the disciples at that Passover meal, he said, this bread, it's about me dying for you, my body being broken for you. And he took the cup and this, he said, this is about the forgiveness of sins that we receive because of my blood shed for you. Father, we thank you that you are a missionary God, that you have sent your people to the ends of the earth and on the way we 
were told about you, and we've had the privilege of being able to walk with you and be part of your mission. Thank you for uh, calling us uh, into that mission. Help us to live it out, uh, not just to the ends of the earth, but right where we live, in our own families, uh, in our neighborhoods, in our workplaces. Help us to live for you and for your purposes and help us to be witnesses of what you've done. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.